No. I'm not worried at all. I rely on God, Allah. On behalf of the Lifehack team, thank you for watching this video. And for more clips and beneficial content, please subscribe to the Lifehack channel, your number one source for personal Islamic development. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back, everyone, to our next session with uh, an amazing uh, speaker, Sheikh, community leader, activist, Dr. Abdullah Hakim Quick. We will be speaking about the lost treasure, the legacy of Islamic revivers in Africa. And um, hopefully we can actually get a lot of uh, lessons for us to be able to use in our current situation here in, in North America because uh, there's a wealth of experience and uh, knowledge that comes uh, for, for us from uh, the African continent. So without further delay, I'd like to introduce our speaker, Dr. Abdullah Hakim Quick. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. for joining us, Sheikh. Uh, you had a very uh, positive contribution, was received very well yesterday. A lot of excellent feedback uh, in your contribution with the panel discussion. And now we get to focus with you. Uh, you had uh, a lecture um, that was similar uh, during the United Islam Awareness Week, and myself, I learned a lot. And uh, I feel that a lot of people are unaware of uh, the great revivers and contributions to the deen that we have from many of the giants from the African continent. Uh, why do you think that is? Why do you think that we, we're not connected or we're not aware of you know, so many of the lessons that we could be learning from them? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, alhamdulillah wa-salatu wa-salam 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 The important issue in the beginning, uh, and you'll see me referring back to it again, uh, is perspective. It's, it's mm. how we look at things. And, you know, when we talk about Africa itself, uh, there's a tendency to look at Africa as something distant uh, and far away. Uh, in the same way that um, with white supremacy, you know, Africa is a dark, you know, foreboding continent. Uh, even amongst Muslims, to a certain extent, uh, Africa was seen as um, a backward place and basically a place where slaves uh, came into Mecca and Medina and the Muslim world. But it didn't really have too much to offer uh, in terms of knowledge, leadership, uh, and guidance. That is the opposite of the reality. It's almost like for years people were saying Christopher Columbus discovered America. And, you know, when the reality was put to people, you can't discover a place when people are living there already. Mm. There's 75 million people living there. There's great civilizations. It was really a trauma uh, for some people, especially some European people, uh, Americans especially, to say he didn't discover America because, you know, it's like they call, they call it cognitive dissonance. It's like part of the brain just doesn't work. So they just blotted out the, the native populations. So similarly, in dealing with uh, Africa itself, uh, people have a tendency you know, to have this cognitive dissonance to not understand how central uh, Africa is to the message itself. And, and so that means we need a little perspective. You, you've got to you know, picture in your mind 
uh, Arabia and Africa and the Red Sea. The Red Sea is not the Pacific Ocean. Yes. It's not a huge barrier in between Arabia and Africa. As a matter of fact, we never called it um, Arabia like Asia and, and, and the other side, Sudan or Ethiopia, is Africa. Like it's two separate continents. They were areas where people lived, linguistic groups and tribal groups, but they were not separate continents with separate worlds. As a matter of fact, they were intricately tied together from ancient times. And so if, you, if we accept the fact that Egypt is part of Africa, and if you look at the map, although people have in their minds Egypt is the Middle East, but if you look at the map, Egypt is Africa. And if you go back, especially um, before Christ, before Isa, you will see that there were very few non-Africans on the <clears throat> continent. So, so the reality is that all the discussions that are dealing with, for instance, uh, Ibrahim, alayhi salam, you could, could even go back further to Adam, right? But I won't go there yet. Go to Ibrahim, alayhi salam, and he leaves Iraq and travels through Syria and down into Egypt, Africa. So he's in Africa. <clears throat> His wife, who was given to him as a servant, Haja, or Haga, she's an African. Mm. And the son, uh, Ismail, alayhi salam, um, is, has an African mother and an Iraqi father. So Africa is involved right in this directly in the discussion from the time of Ibrahim alayhi salam. When we make our hajj, we're running between Safa and Marwa because of an African woman who was running in between Safa and Marwa. Mm -hmm. And you can continue on when you look at Musa uh, alayhi salam uh, or even go to uh, Joseph, Yusuf alayhi salam. <coughs> Yusuf was taken into Misr, into Egypt. That's Africa. That's the reality. You go back a little bit to Luqman, the great wise man, a chapter in the Quran is there. He's an African, he's a Nubian. And if you go in the text, it's there. But cognitive dissonance in some people's mind would make Luqman look like something else. If you ask the average Muslim, what did Luqman look, look like? He'd probably say, if they, were, if they were from India and Pakistan, probably look sort of Asian. Uh, if they were an Arab, he would look sort of Arab. But very few would actually say he was a black Nubian. So, so, so it's something that has been sort of um, uh, not totally erased, but sort of covered up within our understanding and our perspective. And, and, and that's so important for Muslims today to gain a new perspective. Because we, we have information, the, the continents and the languages are not a barrier like they used to be. <clears throat> so we can actually cross the barriers and, and, and gain a new consciousness uh, in terms of when we're dealing with the African continent. Okay, so that perspective part is really important uh, right from the beginning. Zamakhir, <clears throat> uh, I think uh, that gives us a good insight because for a lot of people, they don't appreciate and understand that many of these figures that we look up to and role models are from African descent and it's a treasure. And, uh, you know, oftentimes, uh, we become the greatest barrier to accessing that treasure, our ignorance. 
become such a big barrier to do that. And, um, and the first step, I think, you know, and, you know, many of our previous speakers, and you've also alluded to it, the first step to overcoming ignorance or many of our problems we face is to educate ourselves. What do you feel uh, are some of the common challenges that we are facing uh, here in North America and maybe perhaps some of the challenges that uh, are in parallel that were faced by some of those who tried to revive the deen in the African continent? Because in, you know, in, in your lecture, you alluded to some of those revivers, those people who brought Islam back or the true essence of Islam back into their communities after maybe it was corrupted for a period of time. So what commonalities do you see with our society and uh, those societies in the past that needed reviving? As far as the challenges are concerned, I mean, in terms of perspective and our understanding, uh, we are living in the shadow of white supremacy and mm. Eurocentrism. And, and, and that is the, the, the whole civilizational concept, you know, of Europe being the source of civilization, uh, of white being positive, of north being developed and south being underdeveloped. We're living in the shadow of this. And white supremacy affects almost everything that we do in education, uh, even as far as subjects like mathematics. And, 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 and you would say that what does white supremacy have to do with math? Because math is just numbers, right? But if, yes. you ask, if you ask people, um, where did math come from? Where did geometry come from? They would probably say the Greeks. Yes. But that's not true. Because the Greeks didn't lie themselves. When you read their text, they will tell you that we got our civilization from the Egyptians. And they were dark-skinned people with woolly, with curly hair. So, um, but, but we've blocked that out. So that white supremacy... You know, is is one of the challenges that we constantly face uh, here in Western countries. It's interesting that you say. Sorry, to, I just want to interject here for a moment because when you said math, you know, Subhanallah. When I was growing up, my father told me, he said, you know, he he told me you're going to face racism in this country. He's like, you're going to face racism. This is a fact of life. He says he told me he's like, make sure you practice your math because that's one thing that if you get the right answer, they can't. You know, they have to mark it right. It's not subjective. They can't, you know, say it, it reminded me of that statement. But my father said, is like, hey, you're going to deal with racism. But if you can get the right answer in math, they can't take marks away from you for being a different color. Go right. ahead. And, and, you know, he, he was right to a certain extent in terms of, yeah. you know, being an engineer or building something or making a formula. Yes. But, yeah. what, is talking about that that, but, but what is in back of that is that when you've yes. got it right, in the back of your mind or people's mind is, it was white people who started this. Mm. So in other words, you, you have brought back the, the Greek concepts. You're mm. now thinking like a Greek. Mm. And the furthest thing in your mind is that you're actually thinking like an African. Mm. That, that the Great Pyramid of Giza, 2560 BC, you know, it's, 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 it's perfect right angles. It's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderment of like, uh, you know, engineering, right? And you need mathematics and physics, and you have to be masters in that to build something like that with the technology that they had. 100%. That's right. And the Greeks recognized that. But yes. when white supremacy came, when Europe back in the 16th century uh, started to take slaves from Africa and they had to justify it, mm -hmm. then 
white supremacy kicks in uh, racism in terms of the ideology and the whole of the history starts to get uh, distorted or turned around. And so Muslims then trying to revive Islam, trying to look at ourselves, we face not only white supremacy, but we face our own tribal ethnic mm. problems that we bring from the Muslim world itself. And we have Arab versus non-Arab and, you know, different divisions, you know, that have taken place within our consciousness. So really, again, it's, it's important to go back to education, uh, to go back to knowledge. And what I've found in, in, in doing uh, research over the years is that many times the truth is hidden in plain sight. Mm. In other words, it's something which is looking you in the face, right? Columbus didn't discover America. The 75 million people live in there. Yes. It's looking you in the face. And it's just a matter of you or me turning it around and saying, no, Columbus was discovered in 1492 because he was lost. He bumped into America on his way to India. Mm. You see? So it, it's just a... It's hidden literally in plain sight. And, and, and so for Muslims, and I know for some people it really hurts for them, you know, to think that um, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, you know, did not look like them. Mm. Uh, or the Sahaba did not necessarily look like them. It's a natural thing that people have when they revere a figure to try to shape that person to look like them. Take the case of Buddhism, for instance. From what I understand, Buddha was actually from, he was like a Patan. He was from northern, you know, Pakistan. That's why a lot of the ancient Buddhist mounds are in uh, uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And but when you look at the, the, the drawings, the sculptures, the statues of Buddha, he looks like he's Chinese or he's Southeast Asian. He's like a sumo wrestler. Right, round face. Yeah. Nothing like a Patan. Yeah. You see, so so it's 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 the but the people took the teachings, but their image the image of themselves they wanted to put it into the place of Buddha. Mm. Similarly, Muslims have done this. They have literally put their own face uh, into the original uh, companions of the Prophet Sallallahu uh, even into the Prophet himself, and um, put this image. Um, in books, in their writings, even sort of like distorted certain terminologies, not even in an evil way, but, but, but it's because their perspective was wrong. Mm. So, so it's so important to have proper perspective when we are looking at things uh, and when we are dealing with people. Okay. So, uh, you know, the, you, you touch upon uh, two things that are communities here have been dealing with for years decades right uh, probably since you know we had any type of significant presence in the west dealing with uh you know white supremacy and asabia especially amongst ourselves that's right is is there an example of revivers in africa that overcame that uh yes um again you know when we look at africa itself and and, and what i try to do in my talk is not just focus on one area mm. but then sort of connect the areas because when we look at the movement of Islam out of Mecca itself you have to go back to the first Hijrah 
Mm -hmm. You got to go back to that first migration in the fifth year of the prophethood when the Prophet sent his companions to Al Habasha. He sent them to present day Ethiopia and Eritrea. Mm -hmm. And that is where they landed. That's Africa. That's what we call Africa today. And it was the great Ashama al Najashi, the Nagus, Radi Allah one, the, the great emperor of Ethiopia, Christian, eventually accepted Islam who literally gave life to the Muslims when they were in sanctuary and became one of the great uh, names. And the Prophet ﷺ made Salatul Janazal Al-Ghaib. That is the funeral prayer for the absent person. Then when you look at the spread of Islam, when the Romans had attacked from the north and when the Muslims defeated the Byzantines and took uh, back uh, Syria, Jerusalem, and they started to take the Byzantine holdings. Now, they looked at Africa, and the, their first entrance would have been Egypt. And so it is Amr ibn al-As who's going into Egypt. This is Africa again that they're going into. And the Coptic people, who are the native Egypt, uh, Egyptian people, they deal with the Muslims as allies. Because they looked at the Romans as an occupying force. And so uh, that unity uh, was able to defeat the powerful Roman Empire. And then the Muslims went right across North Africa. And as Uqba ibn Nafi is riding his horse all the way to the Atlantic, uh, you are going across uh, years, centuries, hundreds and thousands of years of human existence. You, you're now at the birthplace of humanity. You're now you know, in the African continent. And so as they go across, they're meeting the Amazigh that they call the Berbers today. And these are the original inhabitants of the Sahara Desert who lived in 10,000 years ago. Sahara Desert was a rainforest. And, and so there's a lot of different people. There's a lot of civilizations. Islam goes across there and then looks south because in the south there were gold mines. There was a trade route. And so trade started going south and the message started to go south. It is even said that Uqba ibn Nafir, Rahimahullah, uh, was, was tabi that he actually not only rode to the Atlantic, he went south. And, and mm. he landed down uh, in a place would be present-day Mauritania, um, parts of Mali. He, he reached down in that area. And some uh, African historians say that he actually married uh, there, and he has offspring. So there are people who, in that region, who, who claim to be descendants of Bukba ibn Nafi. The point is, though, when Islam goes across, and then starts to go down. The Berber people, the Amazigh, and you know, an African nation, take Islam, and it is revived. There are great people coming out of these nations. Abdullahi ibn Yasin, mm -hmm. Rahimullah, who, who founded the Murabitun, that they call Al Muravids, right? Mm -hmm. The person coming from Morocco. Morocco is Africa. Mm -hmm. The great Al Murabitun movement. And you find um, uh, Jibril, uh, you find that, um, uh, you know, Umar, you know, the, the great leader, Abu Bakr ibn Umar, who was the great leader of, of the Murabitun, he founded uh, their capital, Marrakesh. That's Morocco. That's Africa. And if you look at pictures, they have, they have sort of a drawing, a relief of what they thought was Abu Bakr ibn Umar, the first emir of, uh, of the Murabitun after uh, Abdullah ibn Yasin. He's actually a black man. He's black for sure. 
Mm. Okay, and then uh, he hears about people in the south because Abdullah ibn Yasin actually didn't stop in the north. He went south. He went down to the Senegal uh, Valley, the place called the Futatoro, on the border of Mauritania and Senegal. And he was in this region. This is where the Murabi tomb started as, as, as a movement. They started to develop. And so it is out of that area that Abu Bakr ibn Umar you know, eventually goes down to that area to give dawah. And he gives the leadership to Yusuf ibn Tashfin, Rahimahullah. Now, Abu Bakr ibn Umar starts to do dawah. He goes across. That's going east. So you're now going through what, what later became the Mali Empire, the Ghana Empire, uh, right across. He was giving dawah. Hundreds and thousands of people are embracing uh, Islam. These are African people who are spreading Islam amongst African people. Mm. Okay? And this is a story, unfortunately, that the majority of Muslims, if, unless you're from North Africa or West Africa, they don't know about this story. And, 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 and their, their stories are amazing. Uh, you know, the biographies, the figures you've mentioned, like, you know, you could make like an epic uh, movie series with what, you know, some of, <laughs> some of the events in their life, you know, uh, occurred. That's right. I mean, Yusuf yeah. Ibn Tashfin, Rahimahullah, his life uh, would be, you know, they made this movie, uh, El Cid, uh, before. It was, a, it was a movie some years ago when I was growing up. Charlton Heston, one of the mm -hmm. actors back in the 60s and 70s. And El Cid was like a blockbuster. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but he is El Sayyid. He was a European, you know, who, who uh, was trained by the Murabitun and Muwahidun. He was trained by them. Uh, you know, and then, you know, it's, it's dealing with his life. Yusuf Ibn Tashfin, his life is unbelievable. He yeah. takes over the leadership and after traveling throughout the desert, he has an army with him. He can put in the field a hundred thousand horses. He puts in the field. Think about this. A hundred thousand horses he can bring to the field. That's his cavalry. And he controls North Africa, the desert, down to Senegal, then eventually uh, Andalusia, all of these areas. And, he, and, and the Murabitun are so humble that when they read their Juma Khutbah, they, 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 they uh, give their, their uh, support to uh, Amir al-Mu'minin, not to themselves. They call their leader Amir al-Muslimin. And they respected the Abbasid Khalifa in Baghdad. So they were connected to the rest of the Muslim world. Even though the, the rest of the Muslim world doesn't know about them, they were connected to the Muslim world. Mm. So it's that area of the Futatoro, where the ancient civilization of Takroa, which started embracing Islam around the 9th century, they started mm. embracing Islam. And then it's around the 11th century that their empire develops as an uncompromising, strong empire of Islam. It's out of that area that a number of revivalist movements come. So these are the, and, and, and in uh, West Africa and the desert, you have what, what they call is scholarly clans. So in other words, there are clans of people, tribes of people who specialize in Islamic scholarship. Yeah. Amongst the Berbers, they called it Zawaya. Zawaya. And um, they are actually 
the forerunners of the present-day uh, Mauritanians, right, Sharpitis. Because many people realize that many of the Mauritanian scholars are some amazing scholars coming out of that area. Right? So their forerunners is a clan called the Zawaya, right? Then you have amongst the Mandinka people, which is another great nation in West Africa, you have Jahanke, and you have Jula, and Wangara. These are scholarly clans, and they're involved in business. So they're nomadic people. They move around doing business, and they're scholars at the same time. So they are able to spread Islam. Now, this is a perfect way of spreading Islam because, you know, Islam, as we discussed in our other uh, discussion, you can't force people to, to embrace a religion. Mm. The people who spread Islam were merchants. So what was so unique about the African continent, and especially the desert region in West Africa, was that the merchants, many of the merchant groups, were scholars themselves. So it wasn't like a merchant following uh, a group of, uh, it, it wasn't like a scholar following a group of merchants. Mm. The merchants themselves were scholars. Mm. And they're the perfect vessels for carrying Islam. And they went right across West Africa, the Savannah region, right into Nigeria, then down toward the um, tropical area, carrying the message of Islam and reviving it. And, and, and there's a number of great empires uh, which develop, you know, out of this movement of Islam, the great Mali Empire, right? And people know Mansa Musa now is the richest person who ever lived. Then the great Songhai Empire with Askia Muhammad Tore and the great empire of Bornu. That would be more toward Lake Chad. Mm. And there's a great scholar, Al-Kanimi. Al-Kanimi is, a, is a, a great scholar. So you have a series of scholarly clans and scholarly individuals who are moving Islam around. And when it becomes corrupted, they revive Islam. Mm. So this is the tradition um, that we're looking at, this revivalist tradition um, that developed in West Africa. And it's really amazing. It, it's, mm. And it's complex. And you'll find similarity if you go to other parts of the Muslim world. Uh, but, you know, maybe because um, the, the scholarship of Africa was so preserved, um, it wasn't so corrupted by a lot of the politics that you might find, say, in Iraq. Uh, or in Syria, or, or in places like that. And, and plus, they didn't have the Mongols to fight against, too, when the Mongols came down and destroyed everything. Um, so therefore, you can literally see um, how it, the society becomes corrupted and how tajdeed happens, revival of Islam, mm -hmm. awakening. You can literally follow the awakening. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate... To, to come into the uh, personality of Shekhothman Denfodio, you know, and to meet some of the great scholars who were researching his writings. He had about 150 uh, books written in Arabic. Uh, mm -hmm. And to meet members of his family and to actually travel in the areas where he lived um, to really get a feel of the Hausa land and the Fula, Fulani people mm -hmm. uh, there. And so... This is why um, it meant so much to me. And I actually developed this as a methodology that I applied myself 
in the 21st century. Uh -huh. And this is one of my secrets, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because I was pushed into this position as Imam of the Jami Mosque in 1985, which was one of the largest masjids in Canada at the time. And we had a thousand people for Juma. And um, I'm a young person coming out of an Islamic institution. You know, I have a, a, an activist background. I'm pushed in this position. How do you deal with this crowd? How do you deal with these different movements, these different schools of thought? You know, my love, my passion for African his history took me to Uthman Danfogu. And so I literally saw what he was doing and I tried it and it worked. And, and, and really it, it was a local version of the major revival of Islam that had happened in different parts of the Muslim world over the centuries. And so I literally used this methodology uh, in order to um, enable the community to overcome the differences because we were all in the same masjid, all the schools of thought, all the Islamic movements, all the racial groups. Um, how are you going to lead a people like this? How are you going to stop them from, you know, fist fighting each other on Saturday, or Sunday after Doha? <laughs> Because there's a difference of why the person wiggling his finger or saying yeah. I'm in out loud. How are you going to yeah. deal with these people? So then this this type of revivalist concept was needed. And Muslims mm. have a natural love for the Quran and the Sunnah. Mm. You know, so if you if you bring the Quran and Sunnah in a relevant way, they'll gravitate toward this. Mm. If you start talking about my sheikh and my movement and my people then everybody gets nationalistic. Mm. But if you go to the Quran and Sunnah in a relevant way, dealing with an issue that they have themselves, um, they'll relate to that. And this is what Sheikh Uthman Danfodio was saying. One of the beautiful parts in his revival uh, and when he was giving advice to the scholars, because again, this is a 20-year-old scholar. 20. Mm. What are our 20-year-old people doing now? Playing video games? They're lost mm -hmm. in cyberspace, you know, yeah. worship the Raptors or LeBron James. You know, like, mm -hmm. where are their minds at? This yeah. is a 20-year-old scholar coming into the field. And mm -hmm. then he's, the, the, the older scholars are, are jealous of him. Mm -hmm. They start to criticize him and attack him. And he responds to them. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the points that he made, he said, stop testing and burdening the common Muslims with philosophical arguments about the names and descriptions of Allah. Because the Muslims, the natural Muslim is on the fitrah. Every Muslim's on the natural connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And, and if he doesn't know these philosophical things, teach him that. Mm. Instead of testing him and burdening him. And this is what was happening to many of the brothers who were coming out of Medina and some in Egypt with a with, with the nouveau, uh, you know, pseudo-Salafi movement, you know, mm -hmm. coming out, not understanding the depth of what it, the Salafi movement supposed to be. They came out with this fervor, ran back into the communities. This is in the 90s and going into, you know, 21st century. And they start testing all the imams, testing the communities, right, and caused a big confusion in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. Fodio revived Islam, and, and he cautioned them. Do not burden the common people with these questions. Mm. 
leave these questions to those who have the knowledge and the character to resolve problems. Mm-hmm. You know, that's some, uh, I think, uh, very relevant to today, today's situation. That advice, very relevant. That's right. He, uh, it's also his balance. I mean, I was so surprised with his balance because, you know, um, I was, you know, I, I was coming out of Medina. I was one of the first people uh, to bring back the Aqidah, Salafiya, Tawheed to the Americas. A lot of the ones who claimed to be big Salafi teachers, when they first heard it, it was probably a lecture from some of the early brothers who came out of Medina, right? And then coming into the field. But at the same time, when I first embraced Islam, I traveled with Tablighi Jamaat. Right? I, I was one of the serious workers. I met, you know, the Bozos. You know, I met uh, Hazrat G. You know, so I used to travel with the Jamaat. And when I was in Medina, I became very close to a Mauritanian who was a very spiritual person. So, so I had different concepts. And, and I'm trying to, like, balance these concepts. Shekhoth man balanced the concepts. Mm. He balanced it because his basis was fiqh. He, he had a strong knowledge base, and at the same time, he was highly spiritual. But what he did, he kept his tasawwuf, he kept his spirituality inside of sharia. Mm. So he could be considered a great faqih, and at the same time, in the Qadri Tariqah, they were considering him to be what they call qutub. A qutub is one of the aqtab, the poles, the access point of spirituality on earth. He didn't consider himself that, by the way. He, he refuted and rejected all the claims that were, people were making about him. Mm. And he said the essence of tasawwuf should be for character building. Mm. It's ihsan. So, so that's a balanced way of approaching the spirituality, right? And for those who wanted to probe the higher levels of spirituality, you have to first be well-accomplished scholar before you even touch it. Because it's a good possibility you might fall into shirk. So, so this is his balanced approach um, to um, you know, dealing with different movements. He was Maliki in fiqh, but he studied uh, Sha'arani, Abdul Wahab Sha'arani, who was a great uh, comparative fiqh teacher of Egypt. And uh, he was influenced by this. And so he allowed Shafi'i teachings. He studied other schools of thought. Mm. That's a balanced way of doing things. Mm. So that's the, that's the beauty of, of that revival uh, that happened on the African continent. And um, it's really needed today uh, that we revive Islam to overcome some of these doctrinal differences. What I'm hearing from you, Sheikh, is that uh, true revival means you cannot be extreme in just one thing. That's that's uh, I think an important thing to note because you know when it's, when we you have maybe youth or people in general coming back to the dean, oftentimes they just might go head over heels in just one you know narrow aspect of the dean, whether it's you know the jamaat tabligh. Um, uh, whether it's the sawwuf, whether it's like, you know, street dawa, you know, any of these things. But true revival, it seems what you're saying, means that we have to uh, acknowledge and address all of these different things. Exactly. And that's why Allah tells us, وَكَذَلِكَ جَعَلْنَاكُمْ أُمَّةً وَسَطًا 
And thus we have made you into a middle balanced nation. So Ummatul Wasata is a balanced nation. It's not extremes. Right? And that's the wisdom of, of applying. Um, you know, I was, uh, I, in the 90s, I was giving lectures in the summer with the Forum for Social Studies. And I traveled with Dr. Jamal Bedoui and Imam Siraj Wahaj uh, and people like this. And we traveled around, um, you know, England, UK and, you know, Scotland, whatever. And we used to end up in the Regent's Park Mosque in London. And London, of course, um, is, is a controversial place. All the schools of thought and the madhabs, they, they seem to have their leaders, you know, are, are living somewhere in the UK. So, so people are really intense with each other. We're generally not that intense here in Canada. Um, you got places like New York City uh, where people tend to be kind of intense as well. But London is an extreme. And um, they used to ask me questions not to get the answer but to find out how I was going to answer it. Mm. So they could label me as one of the groups. Yeah, the, the gotcha questions, right? Right. So yeah. I stood up one, one, one day in front of them, and I mm. said to them, all of your movements, take your Salafi, Sufi, Tablighi, Ikhwani, Hizbu Tahriri, and throw it out the window mm. if it is dividing you from your brothers and sisters if it takes you from Qur'an and Sunnah. And the people looked at me and they said, Abdullah Hakim has lost his mind. Mm. But then when they thought about it, they couldn't refute what I was saying. Mm. Because when you study the Salafi movement, when you study Tasawwuf, when you study Tabligh, you see that these movements are developed because of an issue of issues happening amongst people. Mm. In some places like the Tabligh movement, the people had the masjids and the graves and the madrasas, but they lost the spirit of Islam. Mm. So Sheikh Muhammad Ilyas, when they first formed the movement, it was to bring back the love of the masjid and the love of the sunnah. Mm. Now, it may be argued that it, it morphed into something else later. <clears throat> but what I understand, that was the basis in the beginning. So if you understand the movements, all of them, <clears throat> it, they were not made to divide Muslims up. Mm. And if it is dividing us up, then what is the purpose of it? Is is the angels, Amunkar and Nakiel, going to ask you in the grave, uh, are you a, were you a Salafi? Uh, mm. what, what tariqah were you? Mm. They're not going to ask you those questions. Mm. You see, so, so somehow, and this is with respects to the movements, by the way, because you have to respect the issues but can't we take the best out of all the movements? Mm. Can't we take the best out of the Salafiyah? Mm. The best out of, out of Tasawwuf? The best out of Tabligh, Khuruj, go out in the path. Mm. Right? Can we take the best out, you know, out of the Ikhwan, community organizing, terbiyah, education, mm. right? Looking at Islam as a whole way of life. Can we, can't we take the best out of all these movements and then revive Islam in a 21st century fashion. Mm. I think it's because maybe we, those people who are within those movements lose sight of the purpose of the movement itself. Like what is the essence of that movement? Just like, you know, when people get uh, so sectarian in the school of fiqh, what is the purpose of that, uh, you know, of that madhab, for example? 
It's to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's to get your family closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the people closer, saving you and your you know family from Jahannam. So if that's precluding you from doing that, like if it becomes so restrictive, maybe you've lost these lost sight of the essence, the purpose of the, what that movement was created for. Exactly. And when you go back and look at um, the, the great uh, scholars, and I remember dealing with this because the whole issue of Ramadan, right? And then, you know, the Hilal. This is where you see divisions come up. But when you go back to the actual school of thought, you find that in many cases, the fatwa that modern day people are following was not made by Abu Hanifa or Shafi'i. It was made by somebody else in the 20th century. But he was a Hanafi or he was a Shafi'i. So they say, this is the Hanafi school. Hmm. Not Abu Hanifa. Yeah. It's somebody who lived 50 years ago somewhere else. You know, so so the perspective, again, you know, is important. And being humble with each other, mm -hmm. right? Being open-minded. Mm -hmm. That really is, you know, the essence of the Dawa person and the reviver. And, and, and it's really needed for the younger generation today. Mm. And that same vein to bring this uh you know type of consolidation or at least uh, have that unity upon understanding what is the underlying main purpose of everything should we also when we look at hi history and historical figures should we like more embrace the term hey this is islamic history not just hey this is indo-pak history this is african history this is like you know, um, Roman or like Muslims living in, you know, the Western lands history. Like, should we start like now when we revive this, like we, we all claim it. Hey, this is this is from us and we are from them, you know, type of thing. True, um, because that's what it's supposed to do. Islam breaks down the, the tribalism and the nationalism. Mm. We have an identity. Yes, mm. we're supposed to have an identity. We're mm. supposed to know our lineage. But that does not supposed to divide us from other Muslims. Mm -hmm. and, and so, um, you know, well, what's happening now because of white supremacy and because of tribalism amongst ourselves, we have to, to a certain extent, work backwards. Mm -hmm. We have to establish uh, the importance of all of the different people of Islam, all of mm -hmm. the different ethnic groups within Islam, mm -hmm. uh, and then work back up towards that, you know, that unity of the Jama'ah, uh, which is sometimes a slippery slope. You have to watch out because if you go too much into your own movement, then you get ultra-nationalistic, like in the case of the Nation of Islam, mm. you know, where everything became, you know, just based upon black people and um, it got extreme and then, you know, went outside of Islam in terms of Aqidah. Mm. So, so, so this is important. You know, to keep that balance uh, mm -hmm. and, and to keep that perspective and keep our eyes on the prize, you know, which is unity, which is the ummah, ummah consciousness. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the blessing and the ummah connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is what we're all supposed to be working towards. But if somebody is sick, if somebody's struggling, then all of us are struggling. Mm -hmm. Right? It's like the famous hadith that, that if there's a part of the body which is, you know, sick, then the whole body responds, you know, with fever and, 
you know, with, 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 you know, sickness, you know, so, so, so that's the reality. If, you know, somebody is hurting in our nation, we're all supposed to be hurting. Mm. And, and, and this, this had been brought to the surface. It was already there, but it was brought to the surface a year ago with the killing of George Floyd, you know, and the black Lives movement and all, all, all these different things that are going up now, this new wave amongst the younger generation. Mm. Uh, it, it sort of reminded people again uh, of this issue. And for some people, it opened their eyes to the issue, which was good. But now your eyes are open. You have to continue to go on. Because as I say, the truth could be hidden in plain sight. Mm. It could have been with you all along, but you didn't deal with it. You know, I was yeah. talking to a, a, a brother, a friend of mine. He's of Pakistani-Canadian origin close friend and colleague of mine, I'm not going to say his name. And, you know, he, he said that um, he was shocked when he was reading that Salim, Mola Abi Hudayfa, the great companion, who was one of the four top Quran readers mm. in the time of the Prophet that he was black. He was shocked yeah. because he had seen the name before, but it just didn't. Yeah just to come to grips with that yeah. you know it is something that you know that he, he, he was just never taught that because mm -hmm. we're insulated in our tribes right yeah we're insulated in our ethnic groups mm -hmm. and unfortunately many of the masjids that have, that develop in urban areas are based on ethnic groups mm -hmm. when we had the jami mosque in toronto that some people call the golden years uh between 1985 and 1989 uh, we had all the communities together. But then the, the, the Toronto spread out to what they call the GTA, the Greater Toronto Area. And now places like Mississauga and Scarborough, you know, they start to develop. So Muslims go out there and they, they um, open up warehouses. They rent these places. And suddenly you go to one masjid and, you know, it's like Mogadishu, Somalia. Mm. You go to another one. It's like you're in um, Kabul, Afghanistan. You mm. go to another one, it's like Istanbul, Turkey. Mm. There's a different flavor to all the different masjids. And the extreme in that that I found, one day I was called to a masjid. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to say the groups, but I was called to one masjid of one group, a warehouse, and there was another one about three or four warehouses down, which was another group. So I was called to Jumar in a typical Muslim fashion, you know, Muslim standard time. We were late, you know, so mm -hmm. last minute they rushed me inside the masjid. You know, yalla, yalla, go inside, Abdullah, go inside. There's only five minutes before the khutbah. People are sitting there. <laughs> As we're going in, the fire trucks are sitting in front of the other masjid. And so I stopped the brothers and I said, what is going on? Isn't that a masjid? Like, shouldn't we check it? And they said, no, no, don't worry, don't worry, brother, don't worry. Mm. And so we went inside, I made the football, and I came out. The fire engines were gone. And I said to some of the brothers, what happened? Mm. And they said, we don't know. Mm. That's their brothers and sisters in that building, right? Mm. That's an extreme. Yeah. And it wasn't Sunni Shia either. They yeah. were all Sunnis. Yeah. That's straight up nationalism.
do you think that's like um a byproduct of like weak iman or like just not understanding the fundamentals of your deen you know like like it, it just seems that like if you believe in la ilaha illallah muhammad rasulullah that automatically links you you know to another muslim in a very deep way like more than blood so do you think that's like a fundamental defect or some type of weakness in iman i mean p- part of it is weakness in iman but <clears throat> a lot of it is <clears throat> that muslims do not take their religion from the usul they don't take it from uh, the basis of the quran and the sunnah they take their religion from their culture mm. and when you take your religion from your culture then your value judgments within the religion is shaped on your culture mm. so you will value certain people in a certain way you mm. value certain languages in a certain way and you, you don't value the essence of the person which is their faith mm. so in many cases the person may be may have a good heart but they're ignorant and the training that they've gotten uh, has actually made them more of a cultural muslim than an actual authentic muslim who does not look at color and does not look at uh, ethnicity or language as something that divides them up it only describes the person but it doesn't give value to that person the value is the taqwa the consciousness of allah it's the knowledge yes. It's, it's the practice it's not how they look but culture is yeah. different because cultures develop where one group moves into an area and they're defending their tribe and they have to fight another tribe so sort of like this culture develops based on their struggle with the other tribe mm. and, and 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 you'll see cultures around the world develop around these issues Yes. and that's that Islam came to break that down but it's a weakness in people and it's a weakness in many of the so-called scholars mm. who, who didn't teach uh, honestly when they were teaching Islam mm. Sheikh I, I want to ask you two things we don't have too much time but uh, I'm very selfish and I wanted to get your insight on like two uh, questions I uh, hear and uh, well, you know if you can try to be succinct because I actually want to get your response for both of them uh and this first question that i wanted to ask you is based on the fact that you are one of the few people who has witnessed decades and also um you know you've been in so many different lands do you feel the boldness of our resistance like of resisting say injustice um has diminished in recent times like albeit like you know we there is a lot like in you could say in in mass media you know whether it's you know the black lives movement and things like that but when i look at things as a whole even my own brief history of like being in, in in tune with you know resisting you could say injustice generally you know you look at you know say the area of the 70s you know you can even see it in the culture the 70s and 80s you know even when you look at uh you know some of the movies that were that people were willing to make anti-war movies for example you don't see that today you see people just mostly towing the line of the the, the dominant hegemonical power you, you know what i mean like it's a badge of honor like people come back now like if you see uh just in, in in media or movies people come back oh look he had so many tours in iraq 
a war that was based on a lie. Whereas, like, if you look at, you know, post-Vietnam War, you saw it's almost like a shame. Oh, we fought for nothing. It was injustice. Why were we there? And you had figures like Muhammad Ali standing up uh, and speaking out against it. You know, fast forward now. Yeah, we'll talk about because I think there's a level of corporatization with like a lot of these identity politics. You'll have LeBron saying, hey, like Black Lives Matter. Uh, what about China? Oh, we can't speak about that at all. You know about the, the issues there. So do do you feel that the the boldness or like the 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 courage uh, that was involved in the resistance of injustice seventies and eighties? Do you see that still today, or do you think that you know the the institutional powers have become kind of hip to how to control the masses a little bit better? So sometimes we feel like we're doing things, but we've actually become more and more pacified. What are your thoughts on that? I like to really hear what you have to say. Also. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a deep question, and really, yeah, no. you know, you, you you've you've got to look at history, and you've got yes. to look at the cycle of things. Ibn Khaldun, you know, yes. talked about you know that there's a point where societies are very high up and strong, and then they get weaker. Mm. If they don't do revival; they can actually go right down to the bottom. Mm. And so we have suffered a series of traumas, major traumas in the Muslim world. I mean, you know go back to, I mean, Palestine is, is, is continuous, and then, you know, the, 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 the different political issues, and, you know, and then the, 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 the weather issues, the droughts, the famines, <clears throat> we, we, we've suffered major traumas, and then the, the September 11th, you know, propaganda that mm -hmm. demonized Muslims based upon the, the so-called September 11th, you know, issue, uh, it demonized Muslims, and we were traumatized. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so, and, and then now with the rise of digital technology and, and people depending so much upon their cell phones uh, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and their, their internet, that the cancel culture, the ability to attack somebody and cancel them, mm -hmm. you know, electronically in cyberspace, it didn't happen like that before. Mm -hmm. If you were back in the 60s and, and, and you made something, you, you said something, you know, like you could go underground, right? You, you know, you could go somewhere else. Um, I mean, if, if you were crossing the border, you know, for instance, you know, going to like, I'm talking about Canada and the United States. If, if a person had a problem, you know, in, in one of the border crossings in, in Buffalo, you know, and then they didn't let them in for some reason, they could drive 20 miles and, and go across another border. Because the, the, the two posts were not connected together. That wouldn't happen now, right? Because yeah. everything is online. Yeah. So the cancel culture now has put us in a trauma and, and it's going to take a new type of creativity. Everything mm -hmm. starts coming back around. Nothing mm -hmm. is static. And, and the great powers are now falling down. You mm -hmm. see what's happening in America now. It's a dysfunctional family. Right? Mm -hmm. Europe did dysfunctional societies. So things are, are, are falling down and other things are starting to grow back up. Mm. And, and that is the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who is the ultimate giver and taker of all things. And as the Arabs would say, yawman leka wa yawman alayk. There's one day which is for you and another day against you. But it mm. all continues in a cycle. Zomah Sheikh. And the somewhat um, related question, but when we're talking about white supremacy, do you see um, white supremacy like the 
the mechanisms of white supremacy um, being intact, but maybe instead of white supremacy, it's being replaced by uh, an ideological supremacy, you know, because, for example, now you'll say, hey, the president is, you know, half black, the the uh, vice president now is black or, you know what I mean? And so you could maybe have the mechanisms of white supremacy in place of like, you know, being able to control oppressed people and try to uh, like have people adopt, um, you know, a dominant culture. But like, you know, the kind of the the people at the top, the elitists who are controlling that, the puppet masters, it's become maybe at least on an identity level, a little bit more diverse. So do you see that happening? Like, you know, so then maybe we have to update that term white supremacy to just you know, supremacy, you know, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, the concept of supremacy ha- has been from the beginning of time with Shaitan, as you yes. know, the first racist. So, mm-hmm. uh, but white supremacy, again, you have to look at racism in three parts. There's the mm-hmm. ideology, mm-hmm. there are racist expressions, and then there's institutionalized racism. Mm-hmm. So the three parts of white supremacy. Number one is the ideology. The ideology is being broken down now. Mm. And you see people even knocking down statues and, you know, they're dealing with history. One of the good things about the Internet is people are sharing information, you know, like mm. crazy all over the place. So, so, so a lot of people are, are woke now. They're awake. They're, they're, they're now, they're not sleeping anymore, but they're confused as to what to do. Mm. So, so really it's a, it's, 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 it's a matter of, you know, that, that, that cycle continuing mm. you know, and, institutionalized racism will take time that is not going to fall down overnight because mm-hmm. it's institutions that have been built up for years and in many cases there's a military and a police that's in back of it so mm-hmm. so it's not going to fall but there was a point in time when the mongol nation and i know that you've done some studies in the ottomans as well i'm, I'm, I'm immersed in you know uh, ottoman culture mm-hmm. and th- th- there's a point where the mongols if you look at their spread out of um, uh, Asia, they were invincible. There was mm. nobody on the ground who could defeat the Mongols mm. because they could fight in the, in the winter, in the summer, in the desert, in the jungle, and they continued to go and they assimilate cultures. But eventually it was because Burke Khan, the Golden Hordes, it was, from, it was internal. It was internally they started fighting each other because there was no power on earth that could actually stop them at that time. But internally, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala manifested that some of them embraced Islam, you know, and then their corruption and then death of their leaders. And so they internally fell apart. So even though the Western powers appear invincible, they're not invincible. And we're seeing them falling apart. You see the madness that happened with Donald Trump and the storming of Washington, D.C. Mm. And, and you know, this is a dysfunctional family. Nobody's going to defeat them from the outside. Mm. But, but it, is, it, is, it is the deterioration of the society itself and, and the expo- expose, you know, of the wrongs that have been done, you know, which eventually brings down great society, so-called great, like the Roman Empire. Mm. It eventually falls. You know, I think that gives people a good hope to move from, you know, because oftentimes when you see some of the injustices these great powers uh, enact, 
it's I think gives them hope to see that hey, listen, they may be trying to do some type of supremacy, but Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is the supreme, and you know, and, and He gives uh, you know power to whom He wills, and it can it can change, and we should remain steadfast in our hope in Allah. That's right, and, and one of the you know beauties of Islam is is that the Prophet said you know at the head of every hundred years or a generation there would be mujaddid there would be revivers of the faith would come mm. put life back into the faith and so this is you know we've seen it historically waves have come against us and the, the Quran and the Sunnah is still there Islam mm -hmm. is still there and so these waves are hitting us in an un, really uh, dangerous way but Allah is the greatest and and, and we hold on to that and, and believe ultimately that that change will come Inshallah. Uh, Sheikh, I really enjoyed our conversation and it went by very quickly and uh, inshallah we have to do this uh, again because this, even this topic of Tajid and Islah and revivers like this gives us hope you know to know that you know when people this this is a hadith of hope this is a hadith of direction no matter where we find ourselves no matter how downtrodden we are there's a direction for us to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and uplift ourselves at the same time. So, Jazamah khair for your time and your contribution. And I look forward actually to doing this with you again very soon. Inshallah. Inshallah. All right. Dear brothers and sisters, the action does not stop here. On behalf of the Lifehug team, thank you for watching this video. And for more clips and beneficial content, please subscribe to the Lifehug channel, your number one source for personal Islamic development. Do I feel that the New York police are providing enough protection or do I have to have protection of my own? I look for protection from Allah.